Welcome, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And on our March to the Annapolis Summit, we have our continuing conversations uh, here on The Mark Steiner Show with our partners, The Daily Record. They print the articles. We do the discussions. Uh, this week's topic at the end of the year is business and this coming session and where the, what the issues might be, where that might take us. You can read the article that was in the Daily Record uh, and also listen to us here. We're joined by Donald Fry, who's president and CEO of the Greater Baltimore Committee, uh, who served himself in the state Maryland State Assembly uh, on each of the major budget committees in your time. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. It's good, good to, to have you. Good to see you. Good to see you. Good to see you. Um, so there is life after Annapolis. <laughs> there is life after Annapolis, yes. And, uh, uh, always ch- it's uh, great to be there, but there's also life afterwards. Right. So it's good to come back to Baltimore. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so let's talk about some of the things that, that uh, you think are going to be some of the major issues that they'll be facing. We're seeing now that the, the, there will be a divide over the question of sick leave. The Democrats have their, 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 uh, their point of view and companies 15,000 have that and more. Fifteen employees. 15, I mean, 15, 15 employees, 15 15 employees 15 or more. more. And, but, the, but the governor wants to change that. Yeah, yeah this, this has been an issue that's been going around for the last couple of years, and there's been efforts to have compromise. Even this during this interim, uh, Senator Mac Middleton, who chairs the Finance Committee on the Senate side, and uh, Joe, Delegate Derek Davis of the Economic Matters Committee, I think, have been talking and working on some sort of uh, compromise, maybe with all the advocates involved. And it hopes there's kind of, because it died on the floor uh, last year, right. uh, but having passed the House, moved over to the Senate. Uh, so I think there has been uh, anticipation they could still pass the bill, and I think something will pass. Now, of course, last week, the governor has indicated his intention to introduce a version of paid right. sick leave that is different. It takes uh, it talks about for employees of employers of more than 50 employees, which is consistent with what you see at the federal level under some federal laws that kick in. And also it says that you can carry over uh, 40 hours a year uh, for paid sick leave, whereas the House version or the Senate versions of the legislature talks about 15 or more employees or 14 or more employees and also talks about carrying 54 hours of sick leave over in any given year. So I think the question is where are they going to fall and can they reach a decision? Is this something that's going to be palatable uh, to the governor to sign? I can see the compromise coming up with that. I mean, we're a very small company here, less than 15 employees, but people do do get paid sick leave. Um, So so, the question I have is what do you you think the merits are here in terms of – for business, I mean, I mean, does GBC take position on this? Well, at this time, we've been watching to see exactly where things are going to be falling out. The reality is, I think many companies already do provide paid sick leave, and there was a provision in the legislation that was kicked around the last couple of years that if your company already provides a minimum of sick leave, paid sick leave, to the level that's being proposed in these in this legislation, that you're exempt from those provisions. I think many companies, particularly larger companies, are already exempt from that because they provide that type of right, right. The concern is for the ma and pa companies who don't necessarily, or the companies who are very small, five to ten type of employees, they don't have the capacity to do so or they don't have people to fill in for sick leave. So, but I think overall, employers want to have a healthy workforce. They want their employees to uh, not to come to work and make other people uh, infected with any sorts of ch- uh, colds or things infections that they have. So I think it's just what can you do to make a balance uh, that businesses can live with? One of the other things that affects business is these questions of the, the our transportation infrastructure battles taking place between the governor and the Democratic leadership. 
Um, and that is, I mean, this is one of the places where the rubber does meet the road in terms of jobs. And especially if those companies are Maryland companies, they're not all from Maryland. Some are Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware come in, Virginia. But I mean, but but the reality is, this is this is a, a major, major uh, a bottle uh, bottleneck between Democrats and Republicans. So what do you? What do you sense that means for the economy of Maryland and where that might go? Well, a couple of years ago, the GBC issued a report called Gaining the Competitive Edge. Right. And in that Gaining the Competitive Edge, we indicated that superior uh, transportation infrastructure was a core pillar of economic growth and job creation. And it also had to be a uh, well-funded and well-structured uh, transportation system. And Maryland, for years, has been highly regarded for its transportation network process and, this, and the structure that we have. Uh, we've done things other states have not done previously. Part of the challenge was we went 21 years without having any sort of a uh, transportation tax increase. Finally, we have an increase. And then even now, you don't see the revenues coming in on the gas taxes to the level that had been anticipated, which puts a crunch on this. You know, I, I support and understand what the governor is saying, and that I think the governor needs to have a large degree of discretion in transportation projects because he's the governor of the entire state. And uh, I think that at the same time, I think people need to know how their money is being spent uh, when they ever have any sort of uh, taxes that are approved and have that transparency that's, need- that's needed. I mean, we can see that part of this was, a, was I mean, it's a very political issue. And part of it had, obviously has to do with the objections to ending the construction of the red line in the metropolitan area. Well, we we were a major supporter of the red line, as right, you know, right. and certainly are not. We're unhappy to see that go drop off the agenda. I think that was one of the factors. But I think if you look around the country, you see that it's been difficult to pass transportation legislation, tax legislation. And we found that we tried for almost 10 years to get the legislation adopted. And you would frequently hear from legislators, I don't know where the money is going. I'm not sure what it's going to be spent on. The public saying the same thing. It's just money's going to uh, the road to nowhere and things of that nature. Right. So I think that there was some of the intention is to create some parameters and look at what the projects would be. At the same time, I think you do have to give the governor discretion. Now, the legislature feels that the bill is written in a way that the governor does not have to follow the, what the ranking is. He just has to issue a letter explaining why he's going outside the rankings. The governor doesn't feel that that's enough for him and doesn't feel that what's in the legislation is enough. Hopefully they can find some sort of a tweak that would satisfy because transportation is a critical component for mobility of people, services, products, etc. Yeah, one of the things I wonder about with transportation, I'm just curious your thoughts on this because the reports you've done in the past, is is, is the, the, one of the questions that hangs out there for me all the time is that we don't seem to have a coherent transportation strategy. I mean, it's like if I, I'm Baltimore County, I want to build this road, and Kent County wants to build that road, and, and everybody has their own interests, and so the, let me try to get as much money as I can to build these roads in this particular area, but without any kind of really strategic thinking about what our statewide needs are. Well, I think that there's been criticism about over the years in that in that area, and that's one of the things that our even our board of directors felt after the last uh, transportation funding increase was approved is let's let's have a ten year strategic plan right, on right. what makes sense to do that. And of course, we also don't have the jurisdictions are not independent of each other anymore. You do see people moving back and forth. That may not have been true a hundred years or or fifty years. And our ago. work, you can live in Baltimore County and work in Howard County or somewhere else. And we, this, we see that all the right? time, and I think that's some 
know why the governor would feel that he needs that flexibility to see this project move together. We've also heard that, you know, the we years ago we heard that the county executives would just give a wish list of their top five projects and that would get pieced together and that would be right. the regional plan i think it's a little bit more detailed than that now but we could always be more cohesive and more collaborative in finding ways because there's only so many arteries in and around this region uh, for us to address mobility by so what do you think the argument going i don't want to be stuck on this it's just but i'm really yeah. interested in transportation and where we go so what, what do you think about the the all the kind of dichotomy between rail and road, and and we see like a man tra- running our transportation now in the state who's he's more of a road guy than a rail guy, and there's a lot of rails too expensive. So where do you see that? Well, we've always said that you need to have a comprehensive, integrated transportation system that included both highways and rail. Uh, there are certain times that you need to have mass transit, you need to have good mass transit operations, not only rail, but also good bus services, whether it be bus rapid transit or whatever right. it would be. You need to have good systems for that, predominantly in the metropolitan regions. And, it's, and the problem is transit is very expensive. Uh, highways are expensive, but transit's very expensive. You don't recoup the amount of money from your ridership on transit. We have a fare box recovery law that requires 35% of funding come from the fare box of people riding it. We don't meet that number. We only meet about 28%, 25%. Uh, at one time, Maryland was at 50%. We're the highest fare box recovery state in the country. It's been reduced to 35%. we are still not meeting that. Uh, but the reality is, is that uh, there's no special, there's no separate funding source for transit. There's no dedicated funding source for transit. It all goes into a trust fund and gets divvied out based upon priorities and needs that are necessary. So I think we need to make sure we have a good balance of the two. So, uh, you know, the, some of the other issues we'll, we'll, that we'll be kind of addressing in this session, um, there's a number of things. There's been a, there's been a, um, a real dust-up over the new companies that are going to be growing, selling, distributing medical marijuana. Yeah. Questions of minority, no minority ownership, and 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 how that's being dusted out. Some people are saying, "Well, you should just open the marketplace up and allow that to be like the like any other marketplace, and not have those restrictions over who gets licenses." So, yeah, I'm not so sure. It's clearly, there's a big issue with respect to the diversity of the licenses and how what the awards were. Um, of course, you recall I had the pleasure of serving as the chair of the commission that decided the uh, slots and the casino right. facilities. Right. And there are, which is almost... You had, a, you had fun there, didn't you? Yeah, it was great. It was, it was a good five-year experience. Uh, no, it really was. I enjoyed it very much. But at the same time, it was very challenging because yeah. it had not been done in this state before, not unlike the medical, medical, medical marijuana has not been done previously in this state. We had some real strict guidelines as to what we had to follow, very prescriptive. And I think you don't see, you haven't seen quite that in the statute. But, you know, there's also the the need to have as much diversity as possible. But there's only so much diversity that can be provided based upon the applications and the capabilities and the capital that's needed and things of that nature. So I know the Legislative Black Caucus wants to take a whole look at the process right, again. Right, right. And I think that they should look at it because we certainly want to have diversity what's going to be one of the major a major business enterprise in, in our state of Maryland. But also you've had a lot of companies who've already spent enormous amounts of capital already on this project, finally gotten, the, gotten their awards, and the question is they've got to move forward if we're going to move this process uh, along. Do you think things like that should be well, – uh, there are some delegates and senators who are going to talk about this. Do you think that, that 
the, the licensure should be restricted the way they're in now? Do you think they should be a, a more kind of open business competition in this? I and mean, that's, that's one of the arguments taking place. I think business competition is probably the better way to do this. It's just whether or not you've uh, – because I don't know if you can open up this sort of a market to everybody. I think the state <laughs> has some reasons to have some regulatory uh, restraints on the process. I don't think you can just open it up and let the market bear itself on this on this issue. Um, other states are doing it, doing it well. There's no reason we can't be looking at what they're doing. And Maryland is different from some of the other states are doing it. Some in certain sizes, you could almost have it open up, and you're not going to get that many people. Maryland is a little bit of a different situation than that. So I think they'll figure it out. But at the same time, I think when you look back to the year that this bill was passed, we are the only – about six other states passed medical marijuana legislation that year. We're the only state that does not have it in operation at this point, which indicates that something seems to be so slow in the process. So uh, uh, for our listeners, could you, and we're here with Donald Fry, by the way, who Donald Fry joined us and it's been a while. It's good to have him back in the studio with us. He's president and CEO of the Greater Baltimore Committee on our lead up to the Annapolis Summit with our partner, The Daily Record, uh, looking at the issues that we'll be debating and talking about in Maryland. Um, could, could you kind of talk a bit about what happened in the Board of Public Works and explain to our listeners how things really confusing around the bond issue that we were talking about before we went on the air? Talking about with the state center? Yeah, right, right. Well, I mean, this is, state center has been a very challenging issue for a number of years from the legislature's perspective. I mean, I think there's always been a desire to want to do something in that part of Baltimore and see some sort of a revitalization. Plus, there's a need going on for of so the long, state office. Though, yeah, the state office right? goes back to actually the Ehrlich administration. Right. Uh, there's been some need to improve the quality of the uh, state office buildings that are there on West Preston Street. And so the people saw this as a public-private partnership opportunity to do something transit oriented development opportunity as well in that area. But there's always been a challenge as to the financing structure that was developed. Is it a capital debt charge or is it like an operating lease type right. charge? And depending upon how it go, how it's con- calculated or considered determines whether or not it applies against your debt capacity for the state of Maryland. So I, I think now there's, there's no, first of all, not a lot of debt capacity left in the state of Maryland. So I think because of just the the fact that they've had difficulty resolving the issues with the person who's received, who has the contract now because there's issues about the financing involved in the project because there's issues about the cost that the state would be paying on a square footage basis if this project moves forward. There's just a lot of unanswered questions and they could not reach a mediation of it. And I think the governor and uh, controller and treasurer felt that this was the time to uh, probably – stop it at this point. Although there's going to be, as we heard, uh, some litigation, I would imagine, because the uh, owner of the rights to that facility feel, have expended dollars for it, have moved, tried to move forward in this process, so they're and they're going, to, they're going to probably litigate. So it's uh, someone who's been in the midst of this for a long time, uh, both as a political figure and now as head of GBC, um, why does it take that much time to decide something like the state center. We're talking about the early administration. We're saying it's been 14, 15 years since it's been on the block, right? Not, not quite that long. No, no, maybe probably, 12 probably years. Probably 12 years. I mean, I'm 12 years. 10 to 12 years. My math is the best. Maybe 10 to 12 years. So why does it take that long to make it, to, to have like this move ahead? I mean, it's. Well, first of all, major projects do take time, whether it be just a lot enti- of time, private sector or public sector, whenever you engage with public-private sector, and it's really, when you think about it, Maryland has not done traditionally that many public-private partnerships. It's a relatively new venture that we've been getting into. Some other states do it more than we do. Virginia does a lot of public-private partnerships on transportation. Right. 
much more than Maryland does. Uh, we do have probably one of the best public-private partnerships that was ever created, and that was the one dealing with Ports America for Seeger Marine Terminal. It's been very, very successful and has been very helpful for the state. So I mean, sometimes these the challenges also remember this started at a time before the recession back in around 2009 or so. Uh, so you ended up having a change in ownership of the person who was going to be developing it. Right. So you had a change of developer. Uh, there was some litigation over the change of developer in this particular case where there's a lawsuit brought as to whether or not the matter should be rebid or could you have that assignment. That took a number of years to get resolved. So sometimes there's a lot of those issues that just carry things out. But the good news I will say about public-private partnerships is about three years ago or so, the legislature passed uh, legislation that outlines the procedures to move forward with on proposed public-private partnerships and does set some time restraints on how you would do uh, pure public-private partnership uh, proposals. Having said that, I'm curious what you think are going to be the major issues facing business in this legislative session. What, what do you think are going to be the... Well, let's talk about the first of the major issue that the legislature is going to have to wrestle with in general. It's one you always have to wrestle with. It's always a premier uh, issue, and that deals with the budget of the state of Maryland. Because the there's, only one, deficit. Yeah, there's only one bill that you have to pass the entire 90-day session, according to the Constitution, and that is a balanced budget. Right. And you have to enact a balanced budget. And we're sitting with a situation now where we have the state looking at about a $350 million deficit in the current fiscal year that it ends on June 30th of 2017, and we're looking at about a $415 million deficit that starts July 1 through June 30th of 2018 that they're going to have to work with during the 90-day session to pass. Uh, we, we've had some – the legislature did reserve some monies in the surplus – uh, about a couple hundred million dollars, I think, to go apply toward this year's issue if needed. The Board of Public Works took some action a number of weeks ago. So I think the gap is closing on the current fiscal year. But you still have the next fiscal year. Right, right. And there's a lot of proposals. There's a lot of plans. The governor had hoped to see some sort of meaningful tax relief. That's going to be very challenging to do when you've got a, uh, a deficit moving forward. Uh, this is the third year of an election cycle or a, of a term of office. This is normally the year where people like to get their projects approved and move forward. Uh, it's going to be challenging. So that's the very major issue that I think you have to deal with is the budget. And a lot of things in the budget control other issues. You're also going to have the paid sick leave, that which we talk about. is going to be a major issue, I think, on the upcoming legislation. The governor recently, as one of his task forces, has uh, released a report dealing with regulatory reform. I think they've identified about 187 uh, regulatory uh, matters that could be eliminated, some by administrative processes, some by legislative processes. So you'll see some of that take place. So those are some of the big things that will take time. Plus, we also talked about the transportation issue. Right. That's going to uh, be that, huge, I think. Be that will evolve. So uh, when you look at those regulations, are there things that you discuss at GBC you think are critically important, or you agree or disagree about the kind of regulations that should or should not be curtailed? Well, I'll be honest with you, I've, we have not, we have always said that you'd like to get rid of duplicate and unnecessary regulations. Right. I don't think anybody opposes that. I think most people feel, and businesses feel, that we recognize the need for regulations when it comes to matters of safety of your employees, when it comes to safety of the, the products being developed, and things of that nature. Sometimes things go a little bit overboard. Uh, the legislature passes a, a, a piece of legislation. The executive branch then creates the regulations. The cabinets create those regulations, and it goes further than what was anticipated. 
So I, I give, I commend the governor and the commission for looking at that issue because it's something you always want to streamline as much as possible. You talked about projects taking a lot of time. Right. Part of the reason projects take a lot of time is regulatory uh, processes as well. So if we can streamline those, eliminate duplication, then I think that's good. But you know, I think I think people will be looking at it very carefully to make sure that they don't go overboard in the process as well. But this is the first time we've actually seen 187 clearly identified regulations. A number of years ago, the O'Malley administration posted an open website for people to list what regulations they would like to see eliminated, and they did not get that sort of response. So I, mean, I don't know much about what those regulations are. I do want to find out before the session goes on to see just what, what we're talking about here. We're glad to come back and talk about I would, that. I'd like to know more about that. Sure. I really want to know more about that. Um, but so what about this confusing message about what the growth rate is in Maryland? I mean, the last report came out said we only created 100 jobs. Uh, you know, that, which is that's not even a number I can fathom. It's so low. Um, so what? And then, and then you see three point five percent growth nationally. So what? What's the, what's the real story? What what is this telling us? Well, I'm not certainly not an economist to be able to give you all but the details. But you're head of GBC. That. You know no, your business, that, that, so. doesn't, that doesn't make me an economist, though. <laughs> but I do think that uh, you know what you've seen. Of course, as we've seen, we saw in 2017, 16, we saw this awful lot of. Um, Somewhat uncertainty uh, that was out in the public because we had a very uh, active election going on uh, for the, at the federal level, and people didn't know exactly what was going to be in store for them after uh, the, the November election date, general election date. Uh, you didn't know. I mean, even the analysts didn't know appropriately. They thought that uh, we were going to see a downturn in the right. uh, in the stock market. We've seen nothing but a significant increase in the stock market over that time. So I think that uncertainty was out there. I think there's been a lot of pent up um, looking. I think if you look in Baltimore, for example, you see more cranes in the sky along the skyline than you've ever seen previously. I think part of that's because for a number of years, people were uncertain, but now in the pent-up demand was there, and their interest became evolving, and they felt a little bit better. Credit lines were still good to get uh, credit from banks and things of that nature. So now you start to see development taking place. You start to see millennials moving. I think there's going to be some strong things happening in the future when you see millennials coming to Baltimore City, for example, locating here. Those are the types of people who have better incomes and with personal property, ta- uh, personal income taxes have not grown to the level that we'd like to see um, in statewide or even in Baltimore City. So I, I think we're sort of at a cusp right now. We're not quite there, but uh, we're, we're not we're not seeing a decline, which is very positive. So I, I wonder, you know, you talked about the uncertainty of the election, uh, how you think this new presidency will affect the issues we have to wrestle with here in Maryland. I mean, we, we have a governor who did not support the president, who is a Republican in a Democratic state. I mean, this is a... Well, there's, I think there's a number of areas that Maryland will do very well, uh, likely you do very well under the Trump administration. Um, for example, we've talked about, you heard a lot during the campaign about increased defense spending. Well, there's an awful lot of defense contractors in the Maryland right. area. Uh, you think about cybersecurity. There's an awful lot of cybersecurity companies in the Baltimore-Washington uh, corridor. Uh, we talk about a, a trillion-dollar investment in infrastructure. Well, we've got a lot of companies that one would be those who provide that infrastructure. And secondly, there's, we have a lot of infrastructure projects that would be available to be funded. And we saw uh, Mayor Pew just recently provide the uh, president-elect with a list of projects that Baltimore is ready to move forward with. So I think that um, there's a lot of things that could happen. I think probably the biggest uncertainty um, is, is deals with the health care. 
Um, I think just from general, people don't know what's going to happen with the health care right. system with a, the total elimination of Obamacare, or do you end up having some modifications of it? How does that influence with what the hospitals and the health care providers have been providing in the state of Maryland over the last couple of years, uh, trying to move in that direction? Are they suddenly going to be stop and say, we have to go a different direction now? I think that's all uncertainty that's else out there as well. And we're very strong, in the, particularly in the Baltimore region, with the health care industry. So, are there anything going to be left out of this? Well, the other things I think from a business perspective that we're obviously going to be looking at, I think obviously you have to look at the tax policies that are going to be proposed, again, regulatory policies. These are things that the Trump administration has been talking about. I talked about the $1 trillion infrastructure proposal. Uh, And then, um, you know, I think that those are are key key players. And then last is trade policies. I mean, one of the things that the Greater Baltimore Committee has talked about is how do we expand our businesses in this region by expanding to more export activities. Uh, so we need to see exactly what impact any trade changes in trade policy could have on business and business expansion, because uh, statistics show that about 70 percent of the world's economy, uh, the growth in the world's economy over the next five years is going to come from outside the United States. So we want to make sure that our companies are able to take advantage of that growth opportunity and that growth spurt that occurs. Well, folks, we've been talking here with Donald Fry. Donald Fry is president and CEO of the Greater Baltimore Committee uh, in our lead up to the Annapolis Summit with our partners, our print partners, and our partners in the Annapolis Summit, uh, the Maryland Daily Record. Uh, and uh, before we let uh, Mr. Fry go, I want to remind you all to please join us for that Annapolis Summit uh, on Wednesday, January the 11th, the opening day of the session, our 14th annual Annapolis Summit at the Governor Calvert House. It's your chance to talk with and have your questions answered by Governor Larry Hogan, President Mike, Senate President Mike Miller, House Speaker Michael Bush. So you want to be there for that. You can get tickets by calling Haley Polling at 443-524-8161. That's 443-524-8161 to talk to Haley Polling or email her at hpolling, that's H-P-O-L-I-N-G-1-L, H-P-O-L-I-N-G, at thedailyrecord.com. And join us on January 11th from 7.30 to 10. 8.30, the governor will be joining us uh, at 9 o'clock. The president and the speaker will be joining us. You can line up, have your questions thought, have a good breakfast, and be part of the daily, our 14th annual Annapolis Summit, which is sponsored by The Daily Record, Stevenson University, the Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, the Maryland State Education Association, Alexander and Cleaver, VPC, and WEAA. And... Uh, Don Fry, thanks so much for dropping by. Great. Look forward to come back and uh, talk to you during the session or other times. Me too. Take care. Thank, Thank you. you. We have to take a short break, but stay with us because when we come back, we're reaching back into our archives just for you for the talk that I hosted at the Baltimore Ethical Society, where I discuss our city's future. Stay with us. <laughs> 